Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 262. So next week we have Chris Carter on the podcast again. Love it. It's going to be great. <laughs> no, last episode with Chris Carter was actually uh, really informative and, and, and fun. And uh, uh, I think Chris had a, had a good time too. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, the last episode was 244. Um, I was chatting with him yesterday about it, about him being on next week's podcast, and I already forgot what we're going to talk about. I was about to say, what's our topic? <laughs> I think we're going to talk about design for, um, not manufacturability, but I think for design for testing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Chris Carter, is uh, uh, he does a lot of uh, test rigs and jigs and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what we're going to talk about. It's funny. It's like that conversation was like 24 hours ago and I already forgot. <laughs> You're a busy man, Parker. Um, so yeah, he's going to be on the podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so he is active in our Slack channel, the backfab.com slash Slack Slack channel. Um, so go ask him questions in there and we'll talk about it on the podcast. Looking forward to it. So my first topic today is kind of like a follow-up from last week's topic I had, which was um, like the number two important thing, most important thing when selecting the component for your new design. Um, so the follow up on that is uh, Robert Ferranek, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Ferranek or whatever. We, I mean, he was also part of my topic last week. <laughs> oh, was it last week? Uh, wasn't that last week when we talked about the uh, crosstalk, signal crosstalk? It was either last week or two weeks ago. Yeah. 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 That's his video. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um so yeah he published a video like the day that our podcast came out of like what to consider when selecting chips for your new board design so i'm not going to steal his content and list like what he talked about in this 20 minute video so go check him out listeners um we'll have a link in the uh description of the podcast um and i'm going to ask robert if he wants to be on the podcast because he sounds like we talk about the same stuff all the time um, and so he, he looks like he typically does is like hardware design and PCB layout online courses. Mm-hmm. So go check out his stuff, especially if you're like new to the, to the layout and hardware, uh, stick. I, you know, I found, I've watched a handful of his videos and I've found all of them to be really educational and, and like, I think he is good for if you're brand new or if you've been in the game for a while. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're brand new, a lot of the stuff might be a little overwhelming because it it does go into detail and it's pretty uh, it's pretty in depth, <clears throat> but it's all really fantastic information. I mean, I've I watch I started watching his videos. Yeah, um, they're, they're when super you when great. you sent me the cross, I I didn't know that was his crosstalk video. Yeah, so I watched that and I actually and re- uh, enjoyed it a lot and learned a lot from it. And then I watched his video on the uh, considering uh, and selecting chip components. Um, and I like that too, cause it expands more on that subject. It's like the number one and the number three, four, five, and six things you have to think about. Yeah. See, I left number two cause that was ours. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never guess what number seven is. Is that a rhetorical question? Never mind. That was, that was my failed attempt at doing a clickbait tar- title. Ah, uh, I was like rhetorical question or clickbait. I can't figure out. <laughs> they're they're the same. Or am I supposed to respond? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That was that was a fail. 
Uh, actually, I wanted to talk uh, this week about flex PCBs. Um, that's something that <clears throat> I, I'm sure at one point in time in the past we've talked about them or at least mentioned them, but I, I don't think we've ever gone into any kind of detail with them. And it's something that I've been looking into, and I, and I say that kind of loosely. Um, I just I have some ideas for some stuff, both in my personal work and at work. Uh, that could benefit from flex PCBs. And, uh, and I thought it would be interesting to chat about a little bit before we get into it. I'm, I'm curious, have you ever worked with flat flex PCBs Parker? I mean, like in, in terms of work, have you ever designed one? I've never designed one by, I shouldn't say it because there's a, so we have a side tangent. Now we have a rule that Steven and I came up with, with talking about projects on the podcast is we can only mention a project that we are we want to work on, like Stephen and I want to work on, if it's halfway done. Okay. <laughs> now we can come up with an idea and say it about it on the podcast, but that idea is like anyone can kind of just take it and and run with it. So, like, if we're saying we are doing something, it has to be halfway done already, because mm-hmm. there's like millions of dead projects on our podcast. Oh yeah. Um. Anyways, back to flex PCBs. I have not built one or designed one, but I have a project I want to use a flex PCB for because it'd be perfect for it. Yeah, well, and so do I. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I'm I'm talking about it less about like what I have done and talking more about the concept of it and how do you do it in a way. And really, I'm I'm not coming from a position of any kind of authority on this. So like in any for the most part, I'm just distilling information that I've gathered about it and uh, just going through that because it might be it, it in talking about this, it might be uh, worthwhile for someone out there who's doing a project that's considering options on how their system goes together. And maybe maybe this will be helpful. So <clears throat> a, a flat or a flex PCB is basically polyamide uh, foil with deposited copper on top of it. So it's literally a flexible PCB. If you've never seen one, actually, I'm, I'm sure most people have seen one and maybe they just don't know the name of it. Uh, it's that kind of tan orange looking um, flexible thing that looks like a connector, but technically it's considered a PCB because it's built in a method that is similar to how PCBs are actually constructed. Is it etched? Uh. I'm going to say, assume yes. Yes, extra deposited. There, I think there are yeah. multiple ways of doing it. So, so I, I found a, I found an, an interesting link or uh, basically a PDF that's by Worth Electronics that gives a rundown. It's like a, an eight-page little just intro to uh, flat flex PCBs that I think is really uh, useful to just get like a overhead view of flex PCBs. We'll post it up in the show notes here, but um, I'm going to pull a handful of information out of it and talk about those. So, so they they define three different methods of uh, system design that they call heterogeneous, homogeneous, and partial homogeneous, which are just fancy words for saying if your system has two PCBs that you connect with uh, solderable connectors and a cable assembly, they call that heterogeneous. There's a different version called homogeneous, which is two rigid PCBs that are connected via a flex PCB that is actually bonded to the PCBs themselves. 
So that's like a rigid flex assembly. That's called a rigid flex assembly. Then there's a third type, which is called a partial homogeneous, where one PCB has the fle- uh, the flex cable bonded to it, and then the other one uses a connector uh, that the piece, uh, that the flex connects into. So it's like a half rigid in a way. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like if you had a, for example, like an FCC ca- style cable that was actually part of one of the boards. Right. Right. So. <clears throat> The some of the benefits of flat flex is is pretty obvious. You can get complex shapes and you can bend a single circuit into a three dimensional shape. So if you have an enclosure that has uh, the need for PCBs on different axes, you can develop one PCB that conforms to the shape of uh, the uh, enclosure. W- one of the one of the examples that I, that always comes to mind when I think of flat flex PCBs, and one place I've seen them a thousand times, is if you open up like a camera. Uh, if it, like the insides of cameras are absolute nightmares of system design. Like all the PCBs everywhere, and and I've seen some before where they like the whole system is literally on multiple rigid boards that are all connected via flat connections and then it all just like wraps into this crazy monstrosity that fits inside like like zero airspace inside of a camera it's kind of ridiculous um in 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 fact there was a uh back when i was working at the fab uh you probably remember this parker there was a a scope uh for a gun that uh came in to the engineering department and this was like a side project thing where it was just like, Hey, you know, buddy's got a, this scope. And it was like this crazy digital scope that was military grade, something or other. Like there was no information about this scope. Let's just put it this way. (laughs) And I remember cracking it open to look what on, on the inside of it. And it was just an absolute nightmare of flex cables everywhere. Uh, But, but yeah, if you, if you need to get PCBs all compacted into a small, uniquely shaped enclosure flex pcbs allow you to do that but they have a ton of added benefits on the manufacturing side of things so in general from what i've researched and what i just know about them they they have the possibility of being more expensive than just a connector solution like what comes to mind is the hobbyist level jst style connector versus a flat flex you 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 potentially will spend a lot less money on a on a uh, JST style connection, but you have to remember that in in manufacturing, perhaps it's a lot easier to have one PCB that all comes in one array as one singular thing versus having to stock different PCBs with cable assemblies and have your purchasing team work all of that out and go through the nightmare of, you know, figuring out logistics and things like that. Flatflex. PCBs allow you to put your entire circuit in one PCB as an array. Uh, so one of the big benefits that comes to mind with that is that you can potentially power up and test your board earlier on, and it's all in the basic uh, format of what the final product would be. So you can test on a panel as opposed to breaking everything apart, assembling it into what it needs to be, and then testing, and then potentially finding out that it failed, right? Yeah, that, I, that was actually the first thing I thought of when you were talking about this. I'm like, man, you could basically do a full system test if your product allows it on a flex rigid board. Yeah, right, right. And and so... Flex comes in a handful of different formats. There's full flex, and then there's also something else. I'm I'm not entirely sure if this is industry specific to this worth 
document or whatnot, but they call it semi-flex. You know, someone out there might be yelling at me right now, but uh, in, in semi-flex, instead of it being polyamide, it's still actually a flexible FR4 style board where they basically do a deep mill through the board and leave just a small amount left over. Uh, and then you can actually flex that into whatever uh, shape you want. And and actually, so semi-flex is, okay, so flexible boards allow for a little bit of um, play in the in the flex because it's basically just it's like a uh, it's like an FCC cable right that just kind of flaps around but with semi flex it's a it's flexible but it's like one time flexible and it's and only flexible in like one axis right right and and they suggest that you use tools to so so you you can still put things in an array on a PCB uh, test it all uh, and then put it in a jig bend it into its final uh, spot and then it's there and then it's done so. That's, you know, if someone's out there looking for um, uh, high volume manufacturing for something that you know you're only going to flex one time, maybe that's a good solution. Uh, but but that's uh, that's a little bit different from the uh, full flex that, that you kind of think of when you're looking at flex PCBs. So <clears throat> a full flex PCB actually has the capability of being multi-layer. So if you need to have multi-layer for whatever reason... Uh, in this document, they say they can go up to 12 layer flex, and I'm sure that makes the cost absolutely skyrocket. But if you do need that, you can. Um, the cheapest option is to do single layer all your all your traces on one side of the flex. The, the kind of one of the benefits, though, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be on the external layers of a PCB. You can have a rigid PCB where the flex portion actually exits from the center of your PCB or internal layers. Uh, so that's potentially helpful based on your design. Uh, so the, it kind of all adds up to making a 3D system design a lot easier one part becomes your whole 3D part after you bend it up. And it has the added benefit of making assembly a lot easier too. So I don't know. That's there's a, there's a lot behind it there. The one thing I can't speak to right now, and I hope to get some information on this in the next few weeks is how much more expensive would it be than a connector solution? And um, in, in lower quantities, I can pretty much guarantee that it's going to be more. Uh, but in in your high volume situations, uh, that's where you might start seeing the the added benefit, especially when it comes to the labor of assembly. Yeah, the one thing to think about with flux is you pretty much have to run PCB tooling, um, like a panel tooling, for those uh, like to run through like your your paste machine and your your pick and place and reflow, just because I mean you can take the panel and then you wiggle it and all the flex boards kind of wiggle in the boards. So it's like, okay, you got to keep those rigid. So you have to have the right kind of carrier set up. So that's what, that's kind of the downside from the assembly standpoint is, and it's in reality, like too, it's fixturing is not that expensive, especially when you start, if you're building a thousand units, now it's like, you know, maybe a dollar a unit. Well, and it, it depends also on how long, the the flex cable is if your flex True. cable is you know uh, a quarter of an inch or something in between boards you may be able to get away without it but if it's like a six inch long flex cable yeah you might get droop in your panel and then uh, then you have problems and as we've 
said multiple times uh, about, you know, dealing with CMs. If there's stuff like that, contact the CM and just have a chat with them. There's no real standard around that. And in fact, a CM that is capable of doing flat flex probably has a bazillion rules that uh, you should take into account beforehand uh, before doing your design. So uh, if, if flat flex seems like something that could make your design better, I would say get in contact with your CM as early in your design process as possible such that you can start working out the cost, but all the design constraints that go around that. Um, and yeah, you, you might think, oh, great, I can get 12 layers and they can all be on the internal side of this board and it can be 12 feet long and this is awesome. And then it's a bazillion dollars, you know? <laughs> Actually, one of the one of the most interesting... No, it's not a bazillion dollars. It just says contact sales. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Cannot quote online. Uh <laughs> One of the coolest flat flex cables I've seen actually was at the fab and it's inside the, the pace jetter. Yeah. The, my 500, the, my 500 pace jetter. Yeah. So in, so for a lot of, um, uh, machinery that have like gantry, uh, controlled or gantry movement, they use E chain to be able to, uh, flex all the cabling that goes from one side of the gantry to the head that actually moves. But in the, my 500, instead of using E chain, they have a, enormous flat flex cable i mean this thing is like the size of your arm uh and it does you know i'm sure they've done all their testing to know how how many cycles you get yeah like how many millions of cycles but like when you see flat flex cables a lot of times they're like communication cables it's like you have your main board and the flat flex goes off to a front panel or something like that but on on this, it's actually passing power. So some of the traces on the on this flat flex are like, like two four inches, inches wide. wide. <laughs> no, some were like four. Yeah, they're huge. They're yeah, absolutely they're massive. So I don't know. That's that's cool. Um, I wish I wish we had a picture of it available. Um, I could probably go to the fab and take a take. A yeah, if, if you get a chance, take a picture of it because it looks really cool. So yeah, um, especially in a homogeneous uh, system, having the ability to do do the test as a whole panel, it makes life considerably more simple, uh, especially in volume. Um, I, I've run into situations in the past where <clears throat> if you're able to test your system way early in the process, then you catch failures and you you fork them off of the assembly path and you you move them into whatever like failure analysis and, and repair path and then fork them back in. Your engineer's inbox. Effectively, right? <laughs> it makes things so much easier, and it makes the suits up up top um, a lot happier because the work in progress cost is a lot less if you're catching it way earlier on. Uh, I've I've gotten into trouble with that before, where like you have a a truckload of failed product that is like final at the end. It's at its last test. And it's like, we could have caught this earlier. (laughs) They're putting the sticker, the seal sticker on like the, on the boxes. Yeah. And you're like, Oh no. (laughs) Oh, we're back up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sound the klaxons and, and uh, yeah, hit the, uh, the Oh shit button. Yeah. So, so um, this, a lot of this just uh, is really applies to kind of higher volume, but um but it's still worth considering in uh, in your mid to low volume because it might actually you might break even by spending more on your PCB but considerably less on your assembly if it makes something um, a lot easier to assemble and maybe even easier to repair. Just not having to build a wiring harness 
Yeah. Is that's a big cost savings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so some of the cool things about this, you can, you can, uh, treat flat flex in a lot of ways, similar to a rigid flex board. So you can expose copper, you can put test points on the rigid flex if needed be. Uh, so <clears throat> some of the things to consider when doing layout for this. So most EDA tools I've run with and, and, and looked at don't handle flat flex boards separately from uh, the rest of your board. It's not like there's a flat flex mode or anything like that because it's not necessarily super standard. So one of the uh, first suggestions is to create a brand new layer in your EDA tool and label it like your flat flex uh, layer and put your information on that layer. So like, you know, the... Um, like the uh, overall dimensions and size of the flat flex you could put on that layer and uh, and extra information on that. Because one of the things that's, that is going to help because these are more custom than your regular PCB, one of the things that's going to help is having a fab drawing to go along with that. Uh, I've, I did a bit of research before this podcast and I didn't find anyone that has like a macrofab style anything near that is for flat flex where it's like oh here we can help you define things we can help you upload things every place i went to even if they mentioned it and had like quoting tools it's still like oh yeah upload your files and we will review them and that at that point the best option is to create flat flex um i'm sorry a fab drawing that shows your entire board, is very clearly defined as in this is the, the flex section, and then put notes on one side. That is, you know, here's the thickness, here's the layer count, here's color if applicable, and all of those things. And send that along with your files. And include that Gerber file that you created that is your new EDA, uh, I don't know, flex layer or whatever you want to name it. So uh, don't put vias in the flex portion. Vias don't like to flex uh try to think of the flat flex as a, just a connector um you're not doing anything unique in the flex portion you're just a two-dimensional connector yeah yeah uh, two or three dimensional right uh and try not to fold the uh, it over in two axes so in other words like don't do any mountain origami folds or anything like that <laughs> do this there are some that can accept that but once again that's a situation where like if you need that you probably already know what you're going for um, most of the time flex cables just allow you to make 90 degrees or 180 degree you know flip overs with with the cable swoops yeah basic yeah swoops make sure that you design in uh strain relief and like extra length or appropriate length of the cable so you're not uh, applying uh, stress to the cable itself or the the bond points on the PCB, kind of like have a little bit extra slack. So there's because there's no strain relief. Not well. I mean, the adhesive is the strain relief. Yeah. Right? So what I'm saying is you have to have a little extra there. Mm -hmm. at, that is your that is your strain relief is basically don't strain it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, use teardrops if your EDA tool allows for it, because uh, that adds a little bit of extra copper bonding and uh, adds rigidity. Use as wide of tracks as you can. So if you define, you know, your your flex area by some amount, like try to space everything so you're using um, as much copper as possible. And if applicable, try to use the same width of copper for each signal. So you can just basically 
increase your tear strength and increase the whole strength of the uh, flex itself. Uh, and try not to change width of the, the, the whole flex in the bend area and the part that you know is doing the swoop. You can change it, uh, you know, at other areas where it's where it makes straight runs onto your PCB or into the middle of your PCB, but the actual bend area, try not to uh, make any changes on that. And then, and then with documentation, uh, you got your PCB Gerbers, you have your extra layer, include any drawings and any extra information on a fab drawing. And uh, I think that'll kind of get the overall gist across. And then once again, call your CM and just say, hey, let's have a chat about this because this is super weird. <laughs> so if you call your CM, this is what they're going to say. Because I actually did research on the other end of like if so in the MacFab platform right now is basically just a little button that you click mm -hmm. and it means it's rigid flex. Okay. So and, and and that just goes to the inbox of engineering. It right? goes to the inbox of engineers, <laughs> right? No, that's totally what it is. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, because we don't the platform, the you have to have a lot. Okay, so this is this is why. Okay, this is why it's not simple. Like a so a, rig, a normal rigid PCB has one stack up. Okay, it has one specification for the PCB. A rigid flex board has that for every single section of the board. So if you have, in your example, you have two rigid boards and then a flat, uh, a flat flex section in the middle that's connecting them to, you actually technically have three stack ups. You have one for the rigid A, which is like one of the boards, one for the flex section, and then one for the other rigid section. And then your, so when you're designing this thing, you can, you can have, all your rigids could have different layers. You can have one that's a six layer, one that's a two layer. Um, then your and same thing with your flex. Your flex can be all different stackups as well. They can connect from, let's say, internal plane one, and then go to like inner plane six on the next board. Like step down into your stackup basically. Um, so that's what you're going to have to provide to your CM is like this complex stack up. And then on your assembly drawing, you're going to have basically an overlay of like, this is what it all looks like. And this section here is this stack up. This section here is this stack up. This section here is that stack up. And so you're telling, okay, all these sections are rigid flex or, or rigid areas. And then these are the flex sections. And these are all the associative uh, stack ups for them. And I haven't found an EDA tool that actually handles that. That's why it comes down, I think, to fab drawing for the most part. Yeah. Um, maybe like Altium and Cadence probably handles it. But I don't know if like I've never even seen an ODB++ file that has like rigid flex in it. Well, and 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 like I was saying, that from this Worth document that I have here, that kind of details it. Down at the bottom, they talk about uh, the the necessary documents, and they basically just say, "Well, I should flip that around." I basically said what they say in there, where it's just like create a new layer and make sure you're clear about it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, interesting enough is. It's kind of interesting and unfortunate because I forgot to mention this last week is uh serious circuits, EMA design automation, EMA. Um, I don't know if it's EMA DA. 
anyways, I got it in my inbox uh, that they're having a webinar for Flex PCB design guidelines for manufacturing. Oh, nice. And uh, so I put it, the link in the show notes. Unfortunately, this podcast probably will come out after that, but I'm going to tweet it and put it in our Slack channel so that people can go watch it because I'm totally going to... I'm uh, signing up literally right now. Right now. <laughs> yeah, it's 1 p.m. Eastern time. February 3rd. Yeah, which is tomorrow. Yeah, when that's this like podcast comes out. an hour after this podcast comes out. Yeah, I know. I, I really wanted to... I just forgot to put on notes for last week. Hmm. So, cool. So, yeah, I I want to I want to check back because I'm doing a bit of research onto this. Uh I want to I want to check back in in a few weeks and talk about what I've kind of learned um mainly from the cost side of things. Uh a flat I'm Where's gonna, that break even point? Where's that break even point? One of the, so so from for most of my boards there's no need for of these kinds of things. The one thing that we've been thinking about um, is, is potential replaceability of components. So instead of uh, like soldering in, uh, you know, potentiometers or, or panel components to panel things, what if they could come on their own carrier board such that if one goes bad, you can just unscrew it, uh, put a new one in and plug it into a connector. Uh, and if, if, you know, if you have a panel of, 50 uh, pots that all get um, soldered automatically by a selective solder machine. Are you saving money by doing it that way? And does that make RMAs easier? You know, so there's a lot of like backend analysis that I have to look at. It's like, how many times do we get a board in that has a bad pot? Uh, how much does that cost? Would it make sense to go with this for, you know, particular components? So there's a lot of that kind of analysis that's just, digging deep into those things but regardless i kind of want to get some quotes and get an idea for the cost of these things on uh, a medium scale maybe Mm -hmm. well i'm looking forward to that because i want to know the answer as well yeah Uh, my my project is kind of like just low volume it was mostly in like exploring what does it take to design a flex circuit Mm. so Okay, so my big topic for today is uh, comprehensive power supply system designs for harsh automotive environments cons- consume minimal space, preserve battery charge, and feature low EMI. I didn't write that. Analog did. Oh my, can it be true? Yes. <laughs> um, I don't remember how I stumbled upon this. But I was working on a project that I can't talk about because it's not 50% done yet. But I can talk about this research I did, which was a, this is an article that Analog wrote. It was a, a, a very interesting because a couple of years back, Analog bought LT, Linear Technologies, that was like, it feels like just yesterday. It was actually like 2016 hmm. um, or 2017. Uh, analog engineer Ben Wu and previous Linear Tech engineer Zhang Yi uh, wrote an application note using linear tech devices on analog.com. So I just thought that was kind of interesting that um, that like the engineers backgrounds, they didn't just like wipe linear tech to like be analog and they're still keeping linear tech's name around on the website. But uh, anyways, I was going, uh, I haven't fully read this document yet. It's, pretty 
uh, beefy topic uh, and uh, article, but just some interesting notes. Basically, I got through like halfway through like why you need to worry about this. Um, so why is like do you have to care about like your power supply on a car? It's like 12 volts, right? It's 12 volts. I'm sure well, the chassis is dirty, like electrically, right? Yeah, it, yeah. that's the big problem is your your power is coming from an alternator, which is a three-phase, basically a three-phase generator that's just running through diodes to rectify it. There's nothing fancy about it. Mm-mm. And so you get this really choppy, in quote, DC waveform that comes off of it. And then your battery is the capacitor that's trying to smooth it out. Hmm. Um, and it, it does an okay job at it. But um, so they, they talk about a couple. There's actually a ton of different standards. I didn't even know about this. And I, looking back, it's like, oh, that makes sense. There's like, I think they list like 10 or 15 different like standards of like basically trying to qualify. These standards qualify what is automotive power and all the different weird events that your power supply has to handle hmm. to actually be functional, like and pass all the uh, regulations. So the first one is a load dump. So a load dump means is like your battery just gets disconnected, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so you have this, the only thing that's trying to keep the, the, the power smooth in your whole system and you completely disconnect it. You basically, it will, your, your alternator will spike up to, depending on the system, 35 to 100 volts positive. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, because of what parasitic conductance or something? Yeah, parasitic conductance. Um, so you have that huge spike, and then it will basically go haywire, and everything blows up. <laughs> um, the other one is cold cranking. So when you turn the key over, basically you're dumping about 300 amps into your starter motor, and that starter motor is going to put a big drain on your battery. Oh, I'm uh, sure it dips wise. like crazy. Yeah, so you'll on average it dips like four or five volts. And so... Uh, all your electronics have to be able to handle basically 12 minus five or six volts. Uh, so six, seven, they have to operate on six, seven volts actually. And, uh, and that's actually 12 volt as automotive power is actually a lie as well. It's more like when it's running, it's more like 14 volts. So that's another thing you have to think about is like, Oh, you have an extra two volts. Uh, like when everything's operating normally, mm. Um, and then you have pulses. So like ISO 7632-2 is a pulse event. I don't know what actually causes this pulse event, but it's a negative voltage swing of 220 volts. What? From yeah, what? I don't know what kind of event that happens at, but that's one of the ISO standards that your car, anything that hooks into your car has to be able to handle. Hmm. Um Reverse polarity, which makes sense, like just putting the battery in backwards. Um, and then AC ripple, which is like if you have a motor that's PWM controlled or you, you, you're you're dropping the bass really hard at, you know, 60 <laughs> beats per minute or whatever. <laughs> um, so you have that AC ripple that's on your DC line. So, so in other words, what this all kind of boils down to is car electronics in terms of the power supply that the you know if you're designing something that that is supposed to run on the on car power like you have to realize that you're just getting like kind of the worst power it's pretty pretty bad um 
and I did like this one thing. Um, this one comment is basically like you look at the schematics. It's like the first line of defense is an ideal diode. <laughs> and I was like, they were like, if you had an idea, ideal diode, all this is solved. Hmm. Right. But you don't have an ideal diode. So what's the next best thing? The LT8672, which is a active rectifier controller, which sounds really cool. It's basically a, a active controller that's looking at the the power line that's coming in. And it has a, a uh, end, channel, end channel MOSFET that it's using as a diode and shutting it off and turning it on at certain events. So like it's protecting from reverse polarity. It's protecting from spikes and like good stuff. I haven't read too much into how it does that. It's an active component. So it's got some linear tech voodoo in it. Hmm. Um, that's my next step is to actually like fully read that whole article and then go into the data sheet for the LT8672, read about how it works. And then on the other end, you have like a wide input um, voltage regulator, which they also recommend a linear tech part that basically spits out your nice, smooth 33 or not 33, 3.3 volt or 5 volt or whatever voltage you want at the end. So hopefully I have something built up in the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But ne- uh, it won't be next week. Maybe the week after that, I'll share more of what I learned from that article. Nice. Pretty excited. Like I'm, I found it and I'm like this again. Look, you know, we've always talked about like linear tech having really good application notes. Oh yeah. This, this right here is like awesome. cream of the crop. Oh yeah. It's perfect. That's cool. And so basically this is reverse protection in like awful situations. Yes. All situations. Like how does it like in the LT eighty six seventy two? Like, I don't know how, but it rejects AC Ripple. Like by modulating that end channel MOS, uh, MOSFET. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I want to read more about it. That's really cool. So. You know, uh, one thing that came to mind, I was I was <laughs> I was sweeping up our shop the other day. Trust me, this applies. Uh <laughs> I I was vacuuming the shop because uh, I basically gone for a few months on our CNC mill without cleaning up. And uh, the chip tray was basically at max capacity. So I had to get rid of all the aluminum chips, but just spillage and stuff from the past few months, there was tons of aluminum everywhere. So I got out our shop vac and I was, I was vacuuming things up and uh, being that it's winter in Denver, Colorado, uh, it's like negative 5% humidity here. And uh, like I was getting shocked like crazy from the from the plastic hose of the shop vac. Like I had to yeah, hold yeah. it out at like a, a, an incredible distance just to knock it blasted in the leg. And it was like painful shocks through jeans if it touched your leg kind of thing, just because okay. of like the air flowing through it. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. that's a, that's a big problem in vacuum systems, right? Like you have to be able to ground them and, and mitigate charge buildup because of rubber tires on cars and cars driving through dry environments, do they suffer from the same problem? Do you get static charge buildup on cars due to driving through uh, dry environments? And I'm wondering if there's, uh, well, I'm sure there's some kind Who's of... Who's never been shocked by their car at least once? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I'm wondering uh, what, what kind of sparked that is that whole 
220 volt spike. I'm wondering if that's a static buildup spike that, ah. that could be caused by that, you know? I, I guess I guess if we look up with this ISO number, ISO 7632-2, road vehicles electrical. No, it's just a whole list of transient events, and that's just one of them. Yeah, they, they don't tell you w- what causes these. They're just like, make sure it handles these. Make sure it handles it, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure somebody knows out there uh, every little aspect of everything a car can go through. Cool. I love these, these like, application-specific chips. They're, they're super cool. Hold on. Before I get to... Can I actually buy this part? <laughs> <laughs> Save me, Mauser. Ooh. Stock doesn't look too good. I bet you. I... I in okay. fact, someone Mauser's, probably has Mauser's a got about a thousand of them. That's okay. How, how much do they go for? In, in thousand uh, piece. In thousand piece? Yeah. Two dollars and seventy cents? Yeah. Not too bad. It's okay. For a chip that basically solves all your problems yeah. and more. Yeah, yeah, I can see that being <laughs> reasonable. That's not bad. Um, I, I, I bet you that somebody out there develops an automotive power supply that um, replicates all of these errors. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can actually, I think in that uh, document, they they have a couple pictures of like the test, uh, test stuff that they... Um, Am I thinking of a different thing now? Like what's coming no, to I'm mind thinking, is, I'm thinking is the complete... lightning event um, uh, generators at uh, like uh, test labs and things. You know, th- that's a very specific power supply or power generator of sorts. I'm sure somebody has like a lab-based car power supply simulator. No, I, I'm, I'm my bad. I was thinking of actually, um, I was looking at... Uh, OBD simulators. Different kind of thing. OBD's onboard diagnostics, which every car after 1996 has to have in America. And you can buy simulators so that you can test equipment that hooks up to cars. Oh, like you can throw faults and things like that. Yeah, you can you can throw faults and that kind of stuff and simu- you basically simulate a running car on OBD. Mm. And it's a lot better than, you know, firing up your car, a, a test car in the lab. Right, right. <laughs> Let alone if you can get a car in there. So, cool. That does it for me. I think that's it for me. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.